is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Mike Strauss from the University of Oklahoma. And um, children, if you could just remember this, God and science go together. You know, I lost sight of that as a child, and I let my misunderstandings of science lead me through a time of atheism. So I'm way excited um, to have Dr. Mike Strauss with us today um, to kind of give us, you know, uh, what he could, has gleaned as a scientist that says, hey, there is things that point to us that really, when you look at the facts, the conclusion is pretty simple. That, that we are created and that there is a higher power and a higher mind. And Dr. Strauss, you come in and give, give words to that. And so welcome Dr. Mike Strauss to us today. And then, um, and then his plan is, at the end of his, uh, he's, he's going to talk, he's got a lot to say, um, but he, we're going to spend some time um, fielding questions so you can have the opportunity to ask him a question directly. Yep. So welcome. Thank you. So, Thank much, you. so glad to be here. Um, yeah, and all questions, there are no questions out of bounds, so I look forward to answering questions at the end. Thank you, Pastor Bob, for inviting me. Uh, first of all, it's nice at this time of year to be invited because the animosity between Oklahoma and Texas is not so great. <laughs> but in, a, in a, a month and a half, you may not want me back, depending, or you may want me back to gloat, I don't know, so we'll see. The other thing is it's very rare, you know, to have a physicist come talk at church, you may not have been aware that you had a physicist today, maybe that's why you're here, because I doubt too many of you got up this morning and just said, I just don't hear enough physics professors talk, so I really need to go to church and hear another physics professor talk. Uh, so what we want to do today is I want to talk a little bit about some scientific evidence for God. What does science tell us about God? But first I'm going to start a little bit with my research, and so uh, this is what will be on the quiz at the end, so take good notes. Uh, so I'm an experimental particle physicist, and I study the smallest structure of the universe. We know that everything's made of atoms. Atoms have at their center a nucleus. The nucleus is made of neutrons and protons, and neutrons and protons are made of quarks. Not everybody knows about quarks. They were actually discovered in 1974, so you should probably know about them. And I spent most of my career understanding how quarks are made, put together to make up protons. So suppose you want to know what a proton is made of. How do you take it apart and see what's inside? Um, well, let's start with something that's more familiar rather than a proton. Suppose you wanted to know what your car was made of. How's your car put together? But you didn't have any tools to take your car apart. What would you do? Well, if you're a particle physicist, you get the car going really, really fast, and you smash it against more cars, and they break into smaller pieces, and you see the pieces come flying out. Um, so this is what we do at a laboratory near Geneva, Switzerland, called CERN. Um, we take particles, and we put them, um, protons, inside a tunnel that's 17 miles around. You can see Lake Geneva in the background of this picture. Um, you can see the Geneva airport, and this tunnel goes under farms and villages. In fact, there's a church that I go to, an English-speaking church in Fernay, France, which is, uh, the tunnel goes right underneath it. So this is on the border of Switzerland and France. If you were to go underneath the ground, you would see something that looks like this in the tunnel. You can see it's curving. It's 17 miles around. Those big blue things are superconducting magnets that bend the protons as they go nearly the speed of light. And then 40 million times a second, these protons collide, and we see what comes out from the collisions. Um, this is a drawing of what the tunnel looks like. Uh, the big blue thing in the middle is called the Atlas Detector. It's where I work. Um, it's actually like just a big camera when we, to see the debris of the collisions. 
It's gigantic. Um, this is another picture of it. If you look at the very bottom, oh yeah, look, these are people. So this gives you some idea of the size of this thing. Protons come in one way at the speed of light. They come in the other way at the speed of light. They smash together. The computer takes pictures that look something like this. And I spent six years as a graduate student and six years as a postdoc so I could understand what looks like spirograph drawings to most of you. All right. And from these kinds of collisions, we understand the structure of the universe. Um, so this, if, if you follow science news, this was one of the two experiments that discovered the so-called God particle. Physicists don't call it that, but the Higgs boson in 2012. My name is one of the 7,000 names on the two papers that actually made that discovery. So we can talk about how I played one seven-thousandth of a role in that discovery. Now, not only am I a scientist at the University of Oklahoma who works at CERN, but I'm also a Christian. And that's something that surprises people. I often have people say to me, how can you be a Christian and a scientist? Those who don't believe um, in Jesus will say, you know, the, you base your beliefs on the Bible, but the Bible is a book that's full of myths. And hasn't science um, shown that it's unnecessary? In fact, don't the discoveries of science even contradict what the Bible says. And those who are Christians have objections as well. I have people come to me and say, isn't science based on um, atheistic um, assumptions? And how can you believe what science tells you? Because the basis for science is this belief that there is no God, or maybe what's called philosophical naturalism. And then I also have Christians who think that somehow science contradicts what the Bible says, particularly the story of creation. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. But as a scientist who's also a Christian, I believe that there can't be any conflict between science and Christianity. That ultimately, these two realms, the realm of studying nature and the realm of studying the Bible, have the same author. God is the creator of nature, and he's the author of the Bible, and he should speak in a single voice. He's a God of all truth. And whether I discover truth by studying the universe or whether I discover truth in the person of Jesus or in the Bible, if what Christians believe is true is actually valid, then those two truths should agree. And I think they do, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Now also, um, because people know I'm a scientist and a Christian, I get lots of questions. These, these may be some of the kinds of questions that you have. Um, things like, haven't scientific discoveries made belief in God unnecessary? Isn't science based on objective evidence and faith based on subjective feelings? Can you be a thinking person and believe in God? Aren't Christianity and the Bible in conflict with recent scientific discoveries? Now, in reality, Christianity is a belief that actually requires you to think. A lawyer once came to Jesus and said, out of everything that God said, what's the greatest commandment of all? Christians believe Jesus was God. And so here a lawyer comes to Jesus, God himself, and says, out of everything you've said, what's the most important thing? I mean, if you have one question to ask God, that's a pretty good one. I can't do too much, but what's the most important thing? And his response was to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And we as Christians sometimes forget that, to love God with our mind. Now, these kinds of questions that are written up here may not be something that particularly interests you. My mother, for instance, isn't particularly interested in physics or these questions. She says, I have faith in God. I don't have a lot of those questions. But you probably know someone who does. 
Someone who these kinds of questions, if not you, are an obstacle to having a relationship with God. And as such, um, Peter makes this great statement in 1 Peter. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And I hope that if these questions are things you have, I'm going to answer some today. If they're not, and you know some of these questions, this will give you some tools to be able to answer those questions about why you believe what you do with gentleness and respect. So what I'm going to do is talk about um, three things that modern scientific observations tell us about God and the place of humans in the universe. And I'm going to talk mostly about science. This is very similar to a talk I give at universities all over the country where they don't want me to talk about what the Bible says. They want me to talk about science. You want me to talk? Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about what the Bible says at the end. But mostly I'm going to talk about things that science has discovered and what that tells us about God and the place of humans in the universe. And I'm going to start with the origin of the universe. Um, so about um, 100 years ago, most scientists thought that the universe was eternal, that it had existed forever, and that it was probably infinite in size. But in 1929, Edwin Hubble made a discovery that the universe was expanding. He noticed that all the galaxies in the universe were moving apart from each other. Now, you don't have to be a rocket... I guess he was a rocket scientist. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist, okay, to realize that if the universe is expanding, it must have started to expand at one point. And if it started to expand, it meant that it might have an origin. Now, scientists didn't like this idea that the universe had an origin. Arthur Eddington said this shortly after Hubble's discovery. Philosophically, the notion of a beginning of the present order of nature is repugnant. I should like to find a genuine loophole. Now, why is it repugnant that the universe had a beginning? Because if the universe had a beginning, it might have had a beginner. And that idea is repugnant to many scientists. Nevertheless, since 1929, every scientist now accepts what we call the Big Bang, that the universe had a beginning. Now, I've often heard people try to describe the Big Bang, even in a disparaging way, without really an understanding of it. I once heard someone say the, the Big Bang was some kind of explosion of cosmic gas. But that's not what the Big Bang is. The Big Bang basically is the origin of our universe. It's a creation moment. It's the beginning of space, time, and matter and energy. Um, and because it has theological implications, scientists did not like the idea. Scientists didn't accept the Big Bang because it was an atheistic theory. They accepted it because the evidence was overwhelming despite the philosophical implications that there might be a beginner. So what's the evidence that led scientists to accept this origin of the universe? There's three pieces of evidence. The universe is expanding, so it must have started to expand. We can make predictions about how much hydrogen and helium should be in the universe. I won't go into the details because I want you to stay awake. But the predictions agree with what we see in the universe to about one part in 10,000. And then finally, we can measure the temperature of the universe. Now, what does that mean? Well, the universe started out very hot, and it's been expanding and cooling since then. But suppose you were to go home right now and turn on your oven. That would be very hot. And you turn the oven off, and you leave the house, and you open the oven door, and you come back, 
And a couple hours later, the whole house would be slightly warmer, which we won't, don't really need today since it's supposed to be 100 degrees, but the whole house would be slightly warmer because the oven was at once very hot. Well, if the universe started out really, really hot, we should see the residual heat from that original Big Bang, and we do. It's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. It's been measured precisely. And again, the calculations agree with the observations to about one part in 10,000. When you can write a mathematical equation that makes predictions and then go measure something in the universe and they agree to one part in 10,000, you can be pretty sure that your mathematical equations are correct. And this is what we see with the cosmic microwave background radiation. But it's not just these things we see in the universe that convince us that the Big Bang occurred. It's also theoretical physics. So here's some pictures of some theoretical physicists. You probably don't know all of them, but you probably know the first guy. Albert Einstein was a pretty smart guy. And in nine, that was a joke, right? Because we know, yeah. Anyway, but because in 1915, Albert Einstein developed what's called the, gen, the theory of general relativity. And his theory actually predicted that the universe should be expanding. But he knew the implications of that, and he didn't like them. This was before Hubble. So Einstein changed his equations to get rid of that expansion because he didn't like the philosophical implications that an expanding universe might have had a beginning. When Hubble made his discovery, Einstein changed his mind. He took that fudge factor out of his equations, and he later said it was the worst mistake of his scientific career if he hadn't added this extra term just by hand because he didn't like the implications, he would have predicted the Big Bang that the universe had a beginning. In 1973, George Ellis, Roger Penrose, and Stephen Hawking came up, took Einstein's theory, and they expanded it. And what it showed is that space and time had a beginning. This is not, you know, some cosmic explosion. This is the beginning of space, time, matter, and energy. And then in 2003, three theoretical physicists uh, Borde, Guth, and Belinkin developed what's called the BGB theorem that basically says any universe expanding on average like ours had to have a beginning. Why do I say all this? To make a point, scientists have reluctantly come to this conclusion that the universe had a beginning of space, time, matter, and energy because the evidence was overwhelming. And if the universe has a beginning, that presents problems. John Gribben writes, the biggest problem with the Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe is philosophical, perhaps even theological. What was there before the bang? Now, I know there are Christians who think the Big Bang is an atheistic theory, pointing away from God, uh, but it's not. It's about as much of a, a theistic theory as you can imagine. If you were God and wanted to show your creation that you existed, one of the best things you could do is let those creatures investigate the universe and understand that it had to have a beginning. Because if it has to have a beginning, then the cause of the universe has to be outside of the universe. If this universe, space, time, matter, and energy came into existence, then whatever started it can't be a part of this universe. And that's what science tells us now. That cause has to be transcendent. So let me just put it very succinctly, if you were in a physics or in a logic class, at the University of Oklahoma. Here's the logical progression. All the observations and calculations indicate the universe had a beginning. Therefore, the cause of the universe can't be a part of this universe. Therefore, only worldviews that include a truly transcendent cause are compatible 
with modern science. There are other world religions that have some idea of a deity that isn't truly transcendent apart from the universe. There are some religions that don't even have a deity necessarily. But only worldviews that have a transcendent cause are compatible with science, which is what the biblical God is, perfectly transcendent, separate from this creation. So what I would argue is that scientific observations support a case for the biblical God for a transcendent cause. This isn't just my idea. Scientists understand this. This is one of my favorite quotes of all time. As the evidence for the Big Bang became overwhelming, Robert Jastrow, who's an agnostic physicist, wrote this in the New York Times Magazine. For the scientist who's lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. So what science has discovered is exactly what the Bible has declared over 2,000 years ago, that the universe had a beginning. The very first words of the Bible say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That the stuff of the universe didn't exist at one time. It came into existence. The writer to the Hebrews says, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what we see was not made out of what was visible. And finally, that there is a creator who's not bound by space and time. Paul writes that God was doing things, giving us grace before the beginning of time. It's interesting because out of all the holy books in the world today, only one book, the New Testament, explicitly talks about a God who acts before time began. It's here and it's in Titus. Where did Paul even get the idea that time had a beginning? 2,000 years ago. We had no clue from science. That didn't happen until 1973 that we had some idea that time had a beginning. But Paul writes explicitly that God was doing things before time began. Now, not only does the origin of the universe give evidence for God, but the design in the universe gives evidence for God as well. And I want to talk a little bit about something called the anthropic principle. It comes from the Greek word anthropos, which means um, humans or mankind. And it's the idea that there are a number of parameters in the universe that are finely tuned to allow humans to exist. It's as if I have a control panel with 100 knobs, and these knobs control different things in the universe, like the speed of light or the fine structure constant. And if I was to change them, you probably don't know what the fine structure constant is, but the mass of a proton, let's say, and if I was to change these knobs a little bit one way or another, it would either create no universe at all or a universe that's inhospitable to life. The definitive book on this is old. It was written in 1986, although discoveries continually are made, called The Anthropic Cosmological Principle by Baron Tipler. Um, it's a great book, but I don't recommend it unless, like, calculus is night, light, nighttime reading for you. And if calculus is just, you know, something that's easy for you, um, then this is a great book. Um, but anyway, um, let me describe some of these parameters. The first one is the strength of the strong nuclear force. I'm reviewing for the quiz. This is what we talked about before. Um, we know that atoms are made of nuclei. Nuclei are made of neutrons and protons. And neutrons and protons are made of quarks. And it's this thing called the strong nuclear force that binds the quarks together in the neutrons and protons and eventually binds those together in the nuclei. It, it, it's because of the exact strength of the strong nuclear force that we have our periodic table. So if you didn't like chemistry class, you can blame the strength of the strong nuclear force. 
If I was to take that strong nuclear force and make it just, um, let's see, 2% what, stronger, then the periodic table would not have hydrogen. So if the strong nuclear force, this knob that controls it, were made 2% stronger, we wouldn't have any hydrogen or very little hydrogen. Well, that's a problem. What is water? H2O, there's no water. What does our sun burn? It burns hydrogen. There'd be no stars like our sun. If I was to take that knob that controls the strong nuclear force and make it 5% weaker, then I would have a periodic table that's basically only hydrogen. So that would make chemistry class really easy. All right, there's the periodic table. <laughs> but it would make life impossible. Not only is the strong nuclear force finely tuned, but the amount of matter in the universe is finely tuned. So shortly after the universe began, everything starts to expand. But because of gravity, everything is attracted to everything else. So if there's too much stuff in the universe, it starts to expand, and it's so attracted to each other that it collapses very quickly before there are times, time for stars and galaxies to form. If there's too little matter in the universe, it expands really fast, and there's not the capability for um, that matter to clump together to make stars and galaxies. Shortly after the universe began, the amount of stuff in the universe, the matter, was finely tuned to one part in 10 to the 60th. I mean, this is a remarkable number. Paul Davies, a uh, physicist, writes, to choose the amount of matter so close to the critical amount, finely tuned to such stunning accuracy, finely tuned, is surely one of the great mysteries of cosmology. If the crucial ratio had been 10 to the minus 57th rather than less than 10 to the minus 60th, the universe would not even exist, having collapsed to oblivion after just a few million years. So I was speaking at Stanford once, and I talked about the amount of matter in the universe, and a professor came up to me, a physics professor, and said, you can't say that the amount of matter in the universe is finely tuned. And I said, but it is. Why do you say that? He says, because we think we know what causes the amount of matter to be finely tuned. Shortly after the universe began, we think it went through a process called cosmic inflation, in which the universe expanded very quickly. And if cosmic inflation is correct, then it kind of forces the amount of matter to be exactly what it should be. So what this physicist was saying to me is, if you have a mechanism that does exactly what it's supposed to do to produce a desired outcome, then you can't call that thing fine-tuned. Right? But you see the problem, because mechanisms can be fine-tuned. Let me give you an example. Um, every week, well, about every other week, my wife would like it every week, but every other week I go out to mow the lawn. Right? And when I go out to mow the lawn, I have to dump this gasoline into my um, lawnmower. But the gasoline, you know, pours all over the place because there's a little tiny hole that it has to go into. So what do I do? I implore a mechanism that forces the gasoline where I want it. It's called a funnel. Now, does the funnel mean that I can no longer say it looks to be fine-tuned? No. The funnel is a mechanism that does exactly a job that it's supposed to do to force the gas into the hole. In the same way, cosmic inflation forces the amount of matter to be just what it should. If you have a mechanism that does exactly what it should in exactly fine-tuned way, then the mechanism itself is evidence for fine-tuning. I have a few more of these, but I think I'm going to actually skip a couple. Um, actually, all right. Um, oh, I'm missing some slides. All right. Yeah. So, um, interesting. 
So anyway, I'm missing some slides in this presentation. So there's a lot of these things that seem to be finely tuned to allow life to exist. Um, so that was the second thing. The, um, the, what did I say? Hold on. Yeah, so I'm thrown off because of... So we said the origin of the universe and the design in the universe shows evidence for God. The final thing I want to talk about is something called the rare earth hypothesis. And the question here is, what's required in order to have a planet that's capable of supporting higher life forms? Right? Now, um, you probably know that there are a lot of life forms out in the universe because you've watched Star Trek or Star Wars. And you know that there's lots of Class M planets, and on those planets are beings that look a lot like us, except maybe big ears or green skin or something, right? But the real question is, what does it take to make a planet that can support higher life forms? And by higher life forms, I don't mean people like humans necessarily. I mean anything more complex than bacteria. So if you want to make a planet that can support life, anything more complex than bacteria, what do you need? Well, the first thing you need is you need to be in the right galaxy. There are three different kinds of galaxies in the universe. There are spiral galaxies like ours. This is what our galaxy, the Milky Way, would look like if you could get far enough from it. And those spiral arms that look like clouds are hundreds of billions of stars that form these spiral structures. There are also irregular galaxies, and there are um, elliptical galaxies. And due to the rate of star formation and other things, those kinds of galaxies can't support higher life forms. But you've got to be in the right place in the galaxy. If you're too close to the middle, there's a black hole. It's not a good place to live near the black hole unless you're in the movie Interstellar. All right? And then too far from the center of the galaxy, there's not enough heavy elements like hydrogen and carbon. And our sun, of course, so between those two circles is where you have to put a star if you want to support higher life forms in a galaxy like the Milky Way. And, of course, our sun is right in the ideal location. Um, our sun is a class G star. It's one of the few kinds of stars that burn long enough and stably enough to support a planet like the Earth. Um, it's a third generation star. That's the youngest star that could support a planet like the Earth. In other words, there were two generations of stars that lived and died, and our sun coalesced, coalesced from the material of those second generation stars. I could talk about all of these factors for a long time. You've seen pictures of Venus and Mars, and none of them look like our beautiful blue planet. There's so many things about the Earth that make it suitable for life, from its size, its rotation rate, its axis tilt, the amount of water on it, a number of things. In fact, um, even tectonic activity is required to have a planet with life on it. Tectonic activity, of course, is what causes the ground to shake. I live much of my life in California. We're very acquainted with tectonic activity. And what's been shown is if you don't have tectonic activity, if you don't have earthquakes, you can't have life. So are earthquakes a good thing or a bad thing? Right? Um, things like our single large moon and the planet Jupiter uh, play important roles in creating a planet that can support higher life forms. In their book, Rare Earth, Peter Ward and Donald Brownlee write this about the planet Earth. If some godlike being could be given the opportunity to plan a sequence of events with the express purpose of duplicating our Garden of Eden, that power would face a formidable task. It is unlikely that Earth could ever be truly duplicated.
So scientists do something we call a back-of-the-envelope calculation. It's an educated guess as to what it would take to make a planet like the Earth. And we can make this educated guess. We know that you have to be in a spiral galaxy, so that's a 10% probability. If you don't like numbers, you can just shut your brain off for the next minute or two. You know that the star has to be the right distance from the center of the galaxy. That's a 20% probability. We don't know what, how many planets have tectonic activity. None of the planets we know of in our solar system have the kind of tectonic activity that can support life. So we give that maybe a 5% probability. And you can multiply these together to make a guess as to what the probability is for finding a planet like the Earth. Uh, by the way, this is a partial list. Here's the full list. Okay? And this is an old list because the numbers keep increasing. At this point when I made this list, there were 322 parameters necessary for a planet like the Earth to exist. So you can do the math. Um, the probability for all 322, including correlations and longevity factors, if you care about statistics, is one part in 10 to the 304th. We know there are trillions and trillions of planets, maybe 10 to the 23rd in the visible universe. So the probability of finding a single planet like the Earth in the universe we can observe from chance is one part in 10 to the 281. Scientists have a number for a, or a name, of a term for a number that small. Technical term for a number that small. Ain't gonna happen, okay? <laughs> That's the technical term. So what do scientists say? They, they say things that are amazing. The, these scientists I'm quoting are not theists. They don't believe in God. They're agnostic or atheist, but look at the kind of statements they make. Fred Horrell says, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a, interpretation of the facts, this is the facts, suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces we're speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Alan Sandage was an atheist, but this kind of evidence led him to become a Christian. He wrote, I find it quite improbable that such order came out of chaos. There has to be some organizing principle. God to me is a mystery, but is the explanation for the miracle of existence why there is something instead of nothing. So how could such an improbable universe exist? Uh, let's see. Okay. So Baron Tipler um, believe that humans, that the universe requires some kind of intelligent creator, but they don't believe in God, so they believe humans will someday evolve to a higher level plane, and they will reach back in time and create the universe for themselves. Okay, so this is my picture of what, you know, this Photoshop, that's not really what Michelangelo, you know, wrote, drew. But anyway, that's an absurd thing. How can you humans reach back in time and create the universe for themselves? These are two respected scientists that argue for that. And the reason they argue for that is because the evidence is so overwhelming that the universe looks designed that if there is no God, you come up with statements or ideas like this. Most scientists don't believe that's true. Most scientists believe there are an infinite number of universes, not galaxies, but universes that we will probably never know about. And if there's an infinite number of universes, then maybe one or two or a small handful can support life and we just happen to be in the right one. This isn't science. In the name of science, it's speculation because the alternative is that there really is a transcendent, intelligent designer and creator. I talk to my colleagues about the design in the universe, and their answer is one of two things. 
Either there's a multiverse, which actually doesn't solve the problem. I don't have time to go into that. And we just happen to be in the right universe, or there's a God. And they much prefer the multiverse because they think that it takes away the, the idea that you need a God. Anthony Flew was one of the leading atheists of the 20th century. For most of his life, he wrote and uh, championed atheism. And at the age of 81, he became a deist, believing there is a God, not necessarily a personal God. And in an interview he had, um, it went like this. Flew says, I think that the most impressive arguments for God's existence are those that are supported by recent scientific discoveries. And the interviewer said, so you like arguments such as those that proceed from Big Bang cosmology and from fine-tuning? And Flew said, yes. Can you imagine spending your whole life devoted to a worldview of atheism? You've written about it. You've you know, tried to persuade people it's the most logical thing. And then at the end of your life, you turn around and say, you know, I was wrong because the evidence supports the fact that there seems to be a God. And that's what happened to him. So then finally, let me ask one more question. So what if the universe is designed? Paul Davies writes this remarkable statement. Remember, Davies is agnostic. If physics is the product of design, the universe must have a purpose. And the evidence of modern physics suggests strongly to me that the purpose includes us. Isn't that remarkable? That a scientist says that the evidence seems to say the purpose includes us. Foil super intellect, Davies' purpose that includes us, sounds a lot like what the Bible says again. King David pondered the same thing. When I consider the heavens, this universe, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Zephaniah, the prophet, wrote about God is saying he will take great delight in you, that you, humans, have a place. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you. And this is the message of Christianity, right? The message is that this God who created the universe, who made himself known through the design and the origin of the universe and this planet we live on, cared so much for humans that he, um, Jesus God became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could have a relationship with him. That God didn't just create the universe in a way we could understand but that he cared so much about humans that he sent his son to have a relationship with humans. Alan Sanders again said, it was my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than science. It's only through the supernatural that I can understand the mystery of existence. And George Greenstein, my last quote, said, as we survey all the evidence, the thought insistently arises that some supernatural agency, or rather agency with a capital A, must be involved. Is it possible that suddenly, without intending to, we have stumbled upon scientific proof of the existence of a supreme being? Now, I don't think you can prove God from science. I would not use the word that George Greenstein used. But I do believe that the evidence is overwhelming. I believe that when you look at the evidence, that it's so clear, it gives abundant evidence for the existence of God, and not just a deistic God, not just a God that set it up and walked away, but a God who is intelligent, who cares for humanity, um, who's a designer, exactly like the God that's described in the Bible. Um, so there is one question that comes up a lot when I give this kind of talk, particularly at a church, and that is, how does this agree with the Bible? Doesn't the Bible say the universe is created in six days, and you're telling me that God created it 14 billion years ago in the Big Bang? 
And I don't have time to go into this, of course, um, so let me just say a few brief things, and then I'll stop and open up for questions. I believe that when you study Scripture, the Bible, the account of Genesis and what it says about creation, that it exactly agrees with what science has understood. In the time scale, the 14 billion years, in the six days of creation, the main point is that the word day, that we translate day as the Hebrew word yom. And just like in English, the word day has lots of meanings. Same with the Hebrew word yom. There's a lot of words up here, but you can see in yellow, you know, yom can mean the period of light, like daytime. We talk about that, day and night. Yom can mean a 24-hour period. It can mean a long period of time. When I say in George Washington's day, the colonists fought the Revolutionary War, in that context, day means a period of time. And I personally believe that when you study Genesis in detail, the best understanding of what that word yom means in context is that it means a long period of time. And I can't go into details because of time. You can invite me back and I can give a whole another 40 minutes on that. I'm going to skip a few things. Um, but if you have more questions on that, there's a lot of resources. Okay? So um, there's a book in the back where I talk about this. Um, the first third of the book talks about scientific evidence for God from the Big Bang and the design of the universe, what I've talked about. The second third of the book talks about how that fits in with the Bible. So if you're interested, you can buy that. I write a blog. Um, I have YouTube channels, all those things you're supposed to have in this world of social media. So these are things that if you have more questions, you can go to. But in the meantime, if you have a few questions before we close, we'll take about five minutes or so and answer questions. So just feel free to raise your hand. And yes. No, it's so dark matter is not the spiritual world. Dark matter is a form of matter that we can see it interacts by gravity. So when we watch how galaxies rotate, when we watch things like um, gravitational lensing, it's clear that there's more stuff that's not spiritual, that's physical, but it's matter than we can actually see. And since we don't know what it is, it only interacts by gravity. It doesn't interact with light, therefore it's dark. Um, we call it dark matter. Yes? Uh, yeah, I noticed uh, you never talked anything about evolution, you know, evolutionary sort of theories. Do you want to touch on that just a little? Yeah, so the question of the age of the universe and how God created the universe through, for instance, like I believe the Big Bang, is an entirely separate question from how God created humans. So if you believe that God created the universe through the Big Bang 14 billion years ago, you don't necessarily believe that God used evolution to create humans. People, um, some people like to lump those together, and they call it the evolutionary paradigm, but they're very different questions. So I believe there's enough evidence from both the Bible and from nature to believe that God's method of creation is the Big Bang. I don't believe there's enough evidence from science to support evolution. I think it could be true from the Bible's point of view. But from scientific view, I don't think there's enough evidence to support evolution. So I believe that God specially created different life forms over the four and a half billion year history of the earth rather than using evolution. But I should point out there are Christians who believe God used evolution and believe it's biblical. And so I think the real important thing, both for your friends and colleagues who are not Christians 
and for Christians who are going to college and going to study evolutionary theories to know that you can be a Christian and believe in evolution. There are great Christians who believe in evolution. Francis Collins, um, who's the head of the NIH and was the first scientist to sequence the human genome, is an evolutionary creationist. He believed God used evolution. Um, Dennis Alexander is another uh, evolutionary creationist who wrote a book called Creation or Evolution, Do We Have to Choose? I don't believe the scientific evidence supports evolution. And the real important thing is to separate the age of the universe and whether or not God used the Big Bang from evolutionary theory and whether or not God used evolution. But I think it's important, particularly for young people who are going to college, to know that this is not an issue that is something to lose your faith over. There are Christians who believe in evolution, even though I think the scientific evidence for it is not very strong. And we could talk about that afterwards. Yes, in the back. Oh, no, where? Sorry, very Yes. Um, the fine-tuning of the universe, I was just wondering, is there any evidence that it could be any different than how it is tuned right now? What do you mean? Like the certain amount of hydrogen, certain amount of particles, certain amount of mass. Is there any evidence to support that it could be any different? Oh, yeah, there's actually some great books. Um, uh, a guy named Luke Barnes and Grant Lewis, who are two um, Australian astrophysicists, wrote a book called A Fortunate Universe. And they actually are theoretical astrophysicists, so they went through all the other possibilities, and they show there's really not other possibilities. It's a really interesting book because um, Luke Barnes is a Christian, and Grant Lewis is an atheist. But So the first half of the book is showing how the universe is finely tuned and it couldn't be any other way, and they both agree on that. And then whether you're an atheist or a Christian. And then the last half of the book is them debating whether the best solution for the fine-tuning is God or a multiverse. And so this, these are your choices. And multiverse is not science. It's, it's blind faith because there's no evidence for it. But given what we know today in 2019 in the universe... It appears that there's a God who designed it or there's an infinite number of universes and we happen to be in the right one. You can't twist the knobs very far at all till the universe becomes inhospitable to life. Whatever happened to Pluto? <laughs> Whatever happened to Pluto? So what it turns out, I'll answer very quick, quickly, there are a lot of things like Pluto out there. If we were to call Pluto a planet, I don't know the exact number, we'd have hundreds of planets. When Pluto was discovered, they didn't know there was a whole bunch of things like it. So the choice is either make Pluto a planetoid, along with the other hundred or so things like it, or give the other hundred planet status. So it kind of makes sense. I, I miss Pluto, but okay. <laughs> yes. Life on other planets or other in the universe, uh, any possibility? And if there is a possibility or if it's discovered, what's the implications for us? No, no I didn't answer it. Um, first of all, if, even if life is improbable, if God created it on one planet, he could create it on multiple planets. So I don't think there's any necessarily theological implications. I do believe that bacterial life we are going to find on Mars or a, or a moon somewhere and my guess is that, you know, life on, the, on Earth has been around for about 4 billion years. And occasionally you'll have asteroids hit the Earth and spew debris out. Some of that debris has found its way to Mars from the Earth. And with, some of it will carry bacterial life that can survive the trip to Mars. 
So I believe we'll probably find bacterial life throughout our solar system. And when we take a closer look at it, we'll realize, oh, this looks a lot like Earth life. And what the scientists will say, well, maybe life originated on Mars and came to Earth. But the more likely explanation is Earth life got transported to Mars. But even if we were to find other intelligent life, the Bible says nothing about, we know there's other intelligent life. God made angels. So, you know, if God creates one planet with life, he could create a lot. I, I don't think it's a theological issue at all. How many planets with life would an infinite God make? One? I don't know. Yes? I'm curious if there's any scientific evidence that you know of that would reinforce a new Earth view versus an old Earth. Right. So there are many Christians, for those who don't know this, who believe that the Bible teaches the Earth and the universe is only about 6,000 years old. This is called a young Earth or a new Earth view. And, and I want to really be careful when I discuss this because um, this is not an issue of salvation. The age of the Earth is one of these things... Um, uh, let's see, who was it? Um, the Archbishop of Spoleto said, was the first to say this famous saying, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, diversity, and in all things, charity. There are certain things we as Christians hold strongly to. Who was Jesus? How do you have a relationship with God? By grace through faith alone. But there are other things that we hold different opinions on. Is there only one way to be baptized? Can you have a glass of wine or not? I know there's some Christians who think you can't, right? Um, I, I like to show my friend, my Baptist friends where scripture says that God makes wine. But, you know, anyway, um, and the age of the earth is one of these things. Now, my opinion is uh, there is no scientific evidence for the earth being young. And when I read people who think there is, I can show the flaws in what they say. They usually only give you part of the picture and not all of it. And I, the more I study the Bible, the more I think that if you understand the original Hebrew language, right? Genesis wasn't written in English, it was written in Hebrew, that the biblical basis for a 6,000-year-old earth is not very strong as well. In fact, it's one of the weakest. So I grew up being taught that if you believe the Bible and if you believe in science, then the earth was 6,000 years old and every um, scientist was missing the information. But the more I... And I grew up in a family of theologians. My dad was a pastor... My brothers are pastors or seminary professors or theologians or missionaries. And so if you go to my house for Christmas, you know, biblical exegesis is the table talk around, you know, dinner. And um, the more I've studied this for myself, the more I, I personally believe that there's no good reason from science or from the Bible to hold to the universe being young. But again, my pastor is a young earth creationist. It's not a salvation issue. Um, one of us is going to be wrong when we get to heaven. I think that's a great place. One more, and then we'll stop, because I want you guys to get out. And I'm going to stick around as long as you want to talk to me with questions. Yes. Um, one of the things I read about is that um, God has the freedom to change the speed of, of light, which directly affects time. So is that a possible explanation of the difference between a young earth and an old earth? Yeah, there, there are possibilities. Gerald Schroeder talks about one. Um, Russell Humphreys tries to bring an old earth into general relativity, but that doesn't work. Russell Humphreys' views of how general relativity can make the universe look old even though it's young. I've talked to experts in general relativity and they tell me it doesn't work. I'm not an expert, but there are ones I know. So again, um, I'm not going to you know, stand up and say um, 
It's my way or the highway, we don't know. I think the evidence points to God using the Big Bang, both biblically and scientifically. And, and again, even if you hold to the earth being 6,000 years old, even if you think that's what the Bible teaches, you need to understand this option. Because if you say to a scientifically-minded friend who's not a Christian, to become a Christian, you have to believe the earth is 6,000 years old, they will never become a Christian. I guarantee it. But if you say... You can be a Christian and believe the Bible is true. There's a whole bunch of them. And believe God used the Big Bang. Then you, you build bridges to share the real important stuff of Christianity. So whether or not you believe this, this should be in your arsenal of tools to discuss with people. That you can be a Christian and hold to this view and believe the Bible is 100% accurate. And again, that's what I haven't gone into details, but it's there. Um, let's close in prayer, and then again, uh, I'll stick around if you have other questions. Dear Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who does not want to stay hidden, but wants to make yourself known. You make yourself known through the word that you've given us, the Bible. You make yourself known by becoming a human Jesus, and you make yourself known in creation. Romans 1.20 says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen through what has been made. And we thank you, Father, that we can be thinking people, that we can love you with our heart, soul, strength, and mind and see you in what you've created. Father, we pray that today we will just catch a glimpse of that, that we can learn to love you more and trust you more and follow you with a deeper devotion. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.